This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Weirdo family member Mike said, Darren, I ordered two queen-size MyPillows and these really are, in a word, luxurious. The way your head and neck just sinks ever so comfortably into the pillow, it's so soft but at the same time so supportive. Right now, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com, promo code WEIRD. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Welcome, Weirdos! I'm Darren Marlar, and this is a special archive episode of Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. And if you already consider yourself an official Weirdo, please help me get the word out by sharing a link to this episode in your social media, and thanks in advance for doing so. Now, bolt your doors. Lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. We moved into a new house in San Jose recently. It's our dream house, but ever since we moved in, I cannot sleep the way I used to takes me a long time before I fall asleep and when I do, I wake up many times during the middle of the night and then in the morning I'm exhausted due to lack of sleep. It's becoming very stressful. It all started shortly after we moved in. I was having one of those now common nights where I could not go to sleep. I was tossing and turning but had my eyes closed. I felt as though someone was watching me sleep, and I opened my eyes and saw a blurry shadow standing next to my bed. I closed my eyes and opened them again. It was no longer there. A few days later, I was taking some laundry upstairs and saw the outline of the shadow standing in the door of one of the bedrooms. I've seen it on the stairs, in our bathroom, everywhere. I've also felt as if someone is touching my legs under the sheets. I'm usually half asleep when this happens, and to be honest, I thought the first time it was my husband trying to get some. But when I asked him the next morning, he told me he did not, that he was asleep. Recently, I've been hearing knocking noises emanating from the spare room. This has only happened a couple of times so far. I'd been living in Odessa, Texas for about two years. I had a very small, comfortable apartment. Every so often, I would notice things out of the corner of my eye. Nothing that scared me or my dog, Chloe. One night, everything changed. I had just climbed into bed. Chloe had snuggled under the covers, ready for sleep. Out of the blue, 
I hear a raspy man's voice. He said, Hey, lady. There was nobody home but us. I told a neighbor about it. He started to tell me a story. About ten years before I moved in, there had been a couple in the apartment. The man had recently got out of prison. He was on parole. He and his girlfriend had an awful fight. He was so angry that he'd broken all the windows in her car. Before anyone called the police, he killed himself. He borrowed a shotgun. It happened in my bedroom. He was afraid that if the police came, he'd be going back to prison. I couldn't believe that no one had told me about this. His name was Eddie Mack. In a bizarre coincidence, I moved home to Massachusetts, met a man on a dating site. I started to tell him my experience. He said, I knew Eddie. He was a psychopath. He knew that he'd killed himself, but didn't realize it was in Odessa, in my bedroom. On a cool day, my wife decided to enjoy our weekend by visiting the Queen Mary ship in Long Beach, California. We live only about 40 minutes away from it and decided to make a day of it. The Queen Mary is a fascinating place, full of history and mystery. The ship was a transatlantic luxury cruise ship and, during World War II, served as a troop transport, carrying thousands of U.S. troops to and from Europe. She was painted gray and was named the Grey Ghost. During one of its many missions, the Queen Mary accidentally crashed into one of its escort ships and literally split it in half, killing many sailors. After the war, the ship eventually returned to being a passenger cruise ship with its black and red colors. The ship eventually was retired from service and now rests in Long Beach. It has been transformed into a hotel and a popular place for banquets, weddings, and many other social events. The ship is also a hotspot of paranormal activity, with countless witnesses to those activities. It even has its popular haunted tour attraction. My wife and I had signed up for the tour and had an hour before going to the designated area to meet the guide. We decided to look around the ship to kill some time. We made our way to the rear of the ship, where there is an area dedicated to the troops that were transported. There were replicas of the rooms where they slept and their gear. It was a mini-museum. As an Army veteran myself, I always enjoy such things. My wife and I went our own ways as we looked through the displays and read the posted stories. We were nevertheless within eye view of each other. My wife was in front of the room replica of where some of the Navy personnel families actually stayed in. Some wives and children actually went with their military husbands. Soon after that, we decided to head to the meeting spot for the tour. As we made our way, my wife started to complain of a painful sensation on her left wrist. She was wearing a light sweater, so she rolled up her sleeve and, to our shock, we saw what caused her pain she had been burned by a cigarette. We saw the clear circle with ash. There were only a few people there, and I know for a fact no one was smoking. We don't smoke, never have. We were confused as to where this burn came from, 
my wife told me that while she was viewing the family displays, she said to the mannequins and photos of the wives of the sailors, you must have suffered. Perhaps one of the many ghosts there took offense to my wife's words, even though they were only said out of empathy. We had to cut the day short and head back home because my wife suffered a strong migraine not long after this mysterious ghostly burn. As we drove off and made it to the freeway, her migraine started to disappear. I've never really given the whole paranormal thing much thought. It's certainly not an interest of mine. However, that may change as my experience, as minor as it was, was rather conclusive to me that there are strange things happening all the time. I know for a fact what I saw was there. It was early evening and I was working at the kitchen table with my laptop. My wife was in our bedroom getting changed. I usually put a couple of hours in after dinner before settling down with my wife to watch a movie or TV show. I was just finished with a long and boring report when my computer completely shut off, just a black screen. No big problem, that happens every now and again, but while waiting for my laptop to boot back up, I noticed something standing behind me as I sat in my chair. I could see a torso and two arms very clearly in the screen. I turned around and nobody was there. I looked back at the laptop screen and nobody was there. I went back to work. What else can you do? Later that night, I was telling my wife about that little experience, and she was telling me that the TV sometimes changes channels on her during the day. She thought it was an electrical fault. Now, what's interesting to me is that my computer went off before I saw that thing, and it could be changing TV channels. Do ghosts have any control over power sources? I'd love to learn more about this. Can you see anything? Yes. Wonderful things. On November 26, 1922, Howard Carter became the first person to peer inside the tomb of King Tutankhamun in Egypt's Valley of the Kings. It turned out to be the discovery of a lifetime and, if some are to be believed, the start of an ancient curse. Howard Carter was born in London on May 9, 1874. His father, Samuel Carter, was a talented artist and he helped his son develop his own talents, which he put to use in 1891 when he made his first trip to Egypt. He was only 17 years old at the time but it was the start of an archaeology career that led to his appointment as the first chief inspector of the Egyptian Antiquities Service in 1899. He supervised a number of excavations at Thebes, now known as Luxor, before he was transferred in 1904 to the Inspectorate of Lower Egypt. Carter resigned from the Antiquities Service in 1905 after an inquiry into an incident between Egyptian site guards and a group of French tourists in which he sided with the Egyptian personnel. Carter's career stalled until 1907, 
when he was hired by Lord Carnarvon to supervise his excavations. Carnarvon financed Carter's work in the Valley of the Kings until 1914 when it was interrupted by World War I until 1917 when serious work was resumed. After several years of fruitless searching, Carnarvon became dissatisfied with the lack of results, and in 1922 he gave Carter one more season of funding to find a spectacular tomb. On November 4, 1922, Carter's excavation group found the steps leading to Tutankhamun's tomb, by far the best-preserved and most intact tomb ever found in the Valley of the Kings. He wired Carnarvon to come, and on November 26th, with Carnarvon, Carnarvon's daughter, and others in attendance, Carter made the tiny breach in the top left-hand corner of the doorway and was able to peer in by the light of a candle and see that many of the gold and ebony treasures were still in place. When Carnarvon asked, can you see anything, Carter replied with the famous words, yes, wonderful things. The clearance of the tomb with its thousands of objects continued until 1932. Following his sensational discovery, Howard Carter retired from archaeology and became a part-time agent for collectors and museums, including the Cleveland Museum of Art and the Detroit Institute of Arts. He visited the United States in 1924 and gave a series of illustrated lectures in New York City and other cities in the United States that were attended by very large and enthusiastic audiences, sparking Egyptomania in America. He died of cancer in Kensington, London on March 2, 1939. He was buried in Putney Vale Cemetery in London. On his gravestone is written, May your spirit live, may you spend millions of years, you who love Thebes, sitting with your face to the north wind, your eyes beholding happiness and, O night, spread thy wings over me as the imperishable stars. Even though he survived for many years after the opening of the tomb, believers in the so-called Curse of the Pharaohs named Carter as one of the many victims. The belief in a curse was brought to many people's attention due to the sometimes mysterious deaths of a few members of Howard Carter's team and other prominent visitors to the tomb shortly thereafter. Despite popular misconceptions, there was no written curse on the tomb of Tutankhamun. The story came from a newspaper report that followed Lord Carnarvon's death. It claimed that the curse read, Death shall come on swift wings to him who disturbs the peace of the king, a phrase which does not actually appear among the hieroglyphs in the tomb, even though it was said to appear in several different tombs in the Valley of Kings. The curses were carved to try and scare away grave robbers. Even so, some very weird things happened after Tutankhamun's tomb was open. The famous Egyptologist James Henry Breasted worked with Carter soon after the first opening of the tomb. He reported how Carter sent a messenger on an errand to his house. On approaching his home, he thought he heard a faint, almost human cry. On reaching the entrance, he saw the birdcage occupied by a cobra, the symbol of Egyptian monarchy. Carter's canary had died in its mouth, and this fueled local rumors of a curse. The first of the mysterious deaths was that of Lord Carnarvon, 
he'd been bitten by a mosquito and later slashed the bite accidentally while shaving. It became infected and blood poisoning resulted. Two weeks before Carnarvon died, Marie Corelli wrote an imaginative letter that was published in the New York World magazine in which she quoted an obscure book that confidently asserted that dire punishment would follow an intrusion into a sealed tomb. A media frenzy followed, with reports that a curse had been found in the king's tomb. Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, suggested at the time that Lord Carnarvon's death had been caused by elementals created by Tutankhamun's priests to guard the royal tomb, and this further fueled the media interest. Doyle would later change his mind away from the spiritual in favor of science. He later speculated that deadly fungus could have grown in the enclosed tombs and been released when they were open to the air. He also suggested that the mold had been placed there deliberately to punish grave robbers. In 1925, the anthropologist Henry Field, accompanied by Breasted, visited the tomb and recalled the kindness and friendliness of Carter. He also reported how a paperweight given to Carter's friend Sir Bruce Ingham was composed of a mummified hand with its wrist adorned with a scarab bracelet marked with, Cursed be he who moves my body, to him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. Soon after receiving the gift, Ingram's house burned down, followed by a flood when it was rebuilt. Howard Carter was entirely skeptical of such curses. He did report in his diary a strange account that in May 1926 he saw jackals of the same type as Anubis, the guardian of the dead, for the first time in over 35 years of working in the desert. Skeptics have pointed out that many others who visited the tomb or helped to discover it lived long and healthy lives. A study showed that of the 58 people who were present when the tomb and sarcophagus were opened, only eight died within a dozen years. All the others were still alive, including Howard Carter, who died in 1939. But those looking for a curse attributed a number of deaths to the opening of the tomb, including Lord Carnarvon, financial backer of the excavation team who was present at the tomb's opening died on April 5, 1923, after a mosquito bite became infected. He died four months and seven days after the opening of the tomb. George J. Gould I, a visitor to the tomb, died in the French Riviera on May 16, 1923, after he developed a fever following his visit. Egypt's Prince Ali Kamel Fami Bey died July 10, 1923, shot dead by his wife. Colonel the Honorable Aubrey Herbert, MP, Carnarvon's half-brother, became completely blind and died September 26, 1923, from blood poisoning related to a dental procedure intended to restore his eyesight. Wolf Joel, a South African millionaire and visitor to the tomb, died November 13, 1923, shot dead in Johannesburg by blackmailer Baron Kurt von Veltheim whose real name was Carl Frederick Moritz Kurtz. Sir Archibald Douglas Reed, a radiologist who X-rayed Tutankhamun's mummy, died January 15, 1924, from a mysterious illness. Sir Lee Stack, Governor General of Sudan, died November 19, 1924, assassinated while driving through Cairo. 
A.C. Mace, a member of Carter's excavation team, died in 1928 from arsenic poisoning. The Honorable Mervyn Herbert, Carter Vaughn's half-brother and the aforementioned Aubrey Herbert's full brother, died May 26, 1929, reportedly from malarial pneumonia. Captain the Honorable Richard Bethel, Carter's personal secretary, died November 15, 1929. He was found smothered in his bed. Richard Luttrell Pilkington Bethel, 3rd Baron of Westbury, father of the above, died February 20, 1930. He supposedly threw himself off his seventh-floor apartment. And of course, Howard Carter. Even though he died many years later, some have still attributed his death to the curse. If you believe that there were a number of strange deaths but don't believe in the curse, then what caused the deaths? While there's no evidence that pathogens, like those suggested by Doyle and subsequent researchers, killed Lord Carnarvon, there is no doubt that dangerous materials can accumulate in old tombs. Recent studies of newly opened ancient Egyptian tombs that had not been exposed to modern contaminants found pathogenic bacteria and a number of dangerous molds. Additionally, newly opened tombs often become roosts for bats and bat guano may also harbor dangerous pathogens. However, at the concentrations typically found, these pathogens are generally only dangerous to persons with weakened immune systems. But can molds cause murders, accidents, and suicides? Obviously not. So, was there really a curse? I'll leave that up to you to decide. In some myths of the Algonquin tribes of North America, there is a mythological creature, Wendigo, that takes different forms. It is a cannibal, a monster. When there is nothing left to eat, it starves to death. When it sees something, it wants to own it. No one else can have anything. This illness feeds on a spiritual void. The Wendigo is a danger that surrounds us. It is not only a creature from myths and legends of the ancients. The Algonquin Native Americans represent the most extensive and numerous North American groups, with hundreds of tribes speaking several related dialects of the language group Algonquian. They lived in most of the Canadian territory below the Hudson Bay and between the Atlantic Ocean and the Rocky Mountains. Their rich mythology and their beliefs survived many generations and so did the Wendigo, a monster and boogeyman. This cannibal monster, also known as Windigo or even Wingigo, is an evil man-eating spirit. However, his abilities and evil doings vary depending on the locality where the legends were gathered. Generally, the Wendigo has certain characteristics of a human or an evil spirit. By possessing a human being, the Wendigo can change him or her to become a cannibal. The Wendigo, a malevolent, supernatural being, is associated with cannibalism, murder, and voracious greed, and this kind of behavior has always been condemned in these indigenous communities. In some myths and legends of the Algonquin-speaking peoples, those who commit sins such as selfishness, greed, or cannibalism are turned into a Wendigo as punishment. 
Among the peoples of Canada, around the Barrens Lake located in Manitoba, Canada, along the eastern shore of Lake Winnipeg, the Wendigo is an amphibious being like an alligator, with bear's feet or cloven hooves. In the beliefs of the Chippewa Indians, also known as the Ojibwe, this evil creature is an ogre which is focused on children to obtain their compliant behavior. Along with other indigenous tribes such as Eastern Cree, West Main Swampy Cree, Naskapi, and Innu, the Ojibwe describe the Wendigo as a giant, many times larger than human beings. In Algonquin folklore, however, the Wendigo is the spirit of a lost hunter who now mercilessly preys upon humans in a cannibalistic manner. The Wendigo is never happy. He's never satisfied with his killings and consuming of the bodies. He is constantly searching for new victims. His hunger is limitless. As I said earlier, when there's nothing left to eat, it starves to death. When it sees something, it wants to own it. No one else can have anything. This illness feeds on a spiritual void. The Wendigo is a danger that surrounds us. It is not only a creature from myths and legends of the ancients. Puzzling loud booms have been heard all throughout the planet this year, and despite lots of speculations, no one knows what's behind this disturbing phenomenon. Are the sounds of natural or artificial origin? Do they come from Earth or space? It's a question not even NASA has been able to answer yet. So far this year, booming sounds have been recorded in 64 different places around the globe, including Australia. These horrifying sounds have been reported worldwide, but the majority of them can be heard on America's eastern coast. Around 9 p.m. on Monday of last week, people in the U.S. state of Alabama called the police reporting a suspicious sound that was described as a loud boom. The boom, which has been dubbed Bama Boom, shook multiple houses and appeared to originate on the northwest side of Lac Bui, according to police. What caused the boom is unclear. Some experts say causes could range from supersonic aircraft to meteors exploding in the atmosphere. On October 10th of 2017, a similar sound left Carnes locals confused. Many suggested it was an F-18 Hornet plane that was heard flying by. Two weeks later, another boom was heard over the Erie Peninsula in South Australia at the same time a blue meteor passed across the sky. The Birmingham, Alabama National Weather Service said the noise could be from an aircraft sonic boom or a meteorite from the Leonid shower. They tweeted, loud boom heard, we do not see anything indicating large fire or smoke on radar or satellite, nothing on USGS indicating an earthquake. Meanwhile, NASA's Bill Cook told ABC 3340 the origin of the mysterious boom still remains unclear. He believes the sound could have been produced by a bolide, a large supersonic aircraft or a ground explosion. According to Cook, NASA's meteor scientists will continue to analyze new data in hopes of determining the cause of the boom. The loud booms are not the only peculiar sounds that have frightened people, though. 
People worldwide have also reported hearing a very peculiar trumpet sound emanating from the sky. The sound has not only caused alarm, but it also makes people behave strangely when listening to it. For the moment, all scientists can offer are speculations. No one really knows what is causing the evil-like trumpet sound, and many have blamed extraterrestrials for the noise. Other people consider the evil-like trumpet sound to be a sign of God, and of course, many also consider the possibility this unusual sound is simply a disturbing but natural phenomenon. I work at Dillard's in Florida, and there's a possessed mannequin in my department. This particular mannequin stands near the front of the department by one of the main entrances, and we use it to display dresses and gowns. I work in juniors. It's always creeped me out. I feel like it's constantly watching me. We have two or three other mannequins in the department, but this one just feels wrong. One night, right before closing, I was straightening a rack of clothes near the mannequin when I heard a loud scraping sound. Only one other person was working with me that night, but she was downstairs returning a pair of shoes. I thought someone else had come to drop something off, but when I turned around, I saw that the mannequin was facing away from the entrance, instead of towards the door like it normally does. I won't lie. After seeing that, I ran to the other end of the department and refused to move until my coworker came back. I could have been imagining things, but I seriously doubt it. It's always faced the front. I think it turned to watch me as I worked. But that's not all. A few weeks later, I came into work for a morning shift and found the mannequin in one of the dressing rooms. I was pretty freaked to find it there, but assumed one of my co-workers had moved it. Since after that, a member of the visual team came by and wanted to know where the mannequin was. I told her it was in the dressing room. She got pretty mad because apparently, the night before, she had dressed the mannequin in one of our expensive gowns and had created a prom-themed display. I asked around, but everyone denied moving the mannequin. I'm not the only one who's had the experiences. My coworker Rebecca was walking by the mannequin one night when she heard someone hiss, leave. She swears the mannequin also turned its head, but I can't verify that. Another time, a customer was checking out the price tag on a dress the mannequin was wearing when she felt a shock, like she'd been electrocuted. She actually shrieked pretty loud, and my manager rushed over to see what was wrong. He's heard all about the mannequin, but doesn't believe there's anything to the stories. The latest, and perhaps creepiest, thing happened just this week. A few days ago, one of our customers lost a locket while trying on clothes. She was really upset because her dad had given her that locket, and he has since passed away. We looked all over the dressing room and all around the department, but didn't find it anywhere. The girl left, crying, and I felt really bad, but I didn't know what else to do. Anyway, last night I walked by the mannequin and found the damn locket hanging around its neck. Even more disturbing, the locket was empty. The picture that had been inside was gone. 
Does anyone know why something would possess a random department store mannequin or make it come to life? Has anyone else encountered something like this? On November 30, 1835, Samuel Clements, who was better known as Mark Twain later on, was born in Missouri. This seemed to be the perfect place to talk about a side of Twain's life that is all too often ignored by historians and biographers. Just as they do with Abraham Lincoln, most scholars ignore the fact that Twain also had a lifelong interest and fascination with the supernatural. For most of us, there's no person who embodied the glory days of the Mississippi River in the way that author and former riverman Mark Twain did. Twain was a humorist, curmudgeon, and gifted author who created some of the greatest American books of all time, including Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. While most readers are very familiar with Mark Twain's adventures, books, and humor, many don't realize that the author had a deep interest in mysterious happenings. Throughout his life, he made a career out of debunking pomposity and arrogance. He was willing to accept things that were outside the norm, including telepathy, ghosts, prophetic dreams, and more. He even became one of the most famous members of the widely acclaimed Society for Psychical Research. Twain's real name was Samuel Langhorne Clements, and he was born on November 30, 1835, in what he called the almost invisible town of Florida, Missouri. He grew up in the small river town of Hannibal, a place that would be made famous through his books. Twain's curiosity about things unknown was awakened at about age 15 when a traveling hypnotist came to town to perform. The magician demonstrated a number of mind-reading acts that Twain quickly figured out. This incident alerted him to fraudulent claims of the supernatural. He knew the man was an obvious fake, but believed that there were real supernatural events occurring in the world. In fact, he believed that he had experienced some of his own in earlier years. Just outside of Hannibal lived a farmer's wife who had a healing power to cure toothaches. She would place her hand on the victim's jaw and then shout the word, BELIEVE the toothache would be instantly cured. Twain was present on two different occasions when such miracles were performed. Both of them involved his own mother. Twain witnessed another strange event a few years later when a young woman that he knew named Olivia Langdon became an invalid at age 16. She was partially paralyzed after a fall on some ice and was unable to leave her bed for nearly two years. After several doctors tried to help the girl and failed, a relative suggested that the family contact a faith healer known as Dr. Newton. He prayed over Olivia, put his arm behind her shoulders, raised her up, and, after a few moments, she took several steps. Until that moment, any attempt to raise her up had brought nausea and fainting spells. Newton said that Olivia would never be totally cured, but that she would be able to walk at least several hundred yards at a time. Years later, Twain asked Newton what the secret behind his power was, and the doctor told him that he didn't know. He believed that some subtle sort of electricity emanating from his body might hold the answer. 
Whatever it was, Twain was always grateful to the man because he married Olivia in 1870. The death of Twain's father started his writing career. He had to leave school and he became a printer's apprentice at the Hannibal Courier newspaper. He moved on from Hannibal to the composing rooms at several newspapers, including two in Philadelphia, and then went to become the city editor for the Virginia City Enterprise in Nevada and a reporter for the San Francisco Morning Cable. In between, he traveled and worked a variety of odd jobs, all of which gave him experiences that he could write about, eventually allowing him to be hailed as one of America's greatest writers. In 1858, Twain became a steersman on the packet Pennsylvania, which traveled the Mississippi River between St. Louis and New Orleans. He began learning the riverboat trade under the tutelage of Captain Horace Bixby, who worked to teach him more than 1,200 miles of river. It was during this time of his life that Twain had what he considered his most remarkable psychic experiences. It was a vivid prophetic dream in which he saw his brother Henry as a corpse, lying in a metal coffin, dressed in one of Twain's own suits and with a bouquet of flowers on his chest. In the center of the flowers was a single red rose. The casket in which Henry had been placed was balanced between two wooden chairs. In his dream, he believed that he woke up. He stated in Life on the Mississippi, I dressed and moved toward that door thinking that I would go in there and look at it, but I changed my mind. I thought I could not yet bear to meet my mother. It suddenly flashed upon me that there was nothing real about this. It was only a dream. Not long before, Twain had found a job for his brother on the Pennsylvania, and the two men were very close. They worked together on as many shifts as possible, and often one brother would join the other on his watch when the other's work had ended for the day. However, at the time of the dream, Twain was in New Orleans, and his brother had departed on the Pennsylvania. Before the steamboat had departed without him, Twain had advised Henry that he should not lose his head in case of trouble. Leave that to the unwisdom of the passengers, he told him. He urged Henry that, after seeing to the safety of the women and the children, he should swim for shore himself. Twain knew how common accidents were, and he wanted to make sure that Henry would not get himself into trouble. Two or three days after the boat had departed from the New Orleans dock, the boiler of the Pennsylvania exploded. Twain managed to reach Memphis a short time later and found Henry near death, lying alongside the rest of the wounded. The details of the story are related in Twain's classic book, Life on the Mississippi, and told of how Henry died from an accidental overdose of morphine that was given to him by an inexperienced doctor. His funeral costs were arranged thanks to the generosity of the ladies of Memphis, who had taken up a collection for the victims of the disaster. All of the deceased were laid out in coffins made from white pine. However, Henry's casket had been made from metal instead. When Twain walked into the room where his brother's body was placed, he found him in an open coffin, wearing a suit of Twain's own clothing. It was just like in Twain's dream. Eerily, an elderly woman walked past him into the room and placed a bouquet of roses on Henry's chest. The flowers were snow-white in color, except for a single red rose in the center of the bundle and the strange events continued when Twain returned with his brother's body to St. Louis. 
as several men took the casket to his brother-in-law's house and were carrying it upstairs, Twain stopped them from going inside. He didn't want his mother to see Henry's face, as it had been badly distorted by the overdose of the drug. When Twain did go upstairs, he discovered that two chairs had been placed as a stand for the casket. Had he arrived a few minutes later, the coffin would have been in the same place as it had been in his dream. When he stopped the men outside, he had changed the prediction of the dream. As a result of this strange experience, Twain developed an interest in the paranormal. He was constantly intrigued by what he called thought transference and claimed to often speak aloud the very thoughts that his wife was having. He was also interested in the fact that he would often receive unplanned letters from friends after merely thinking of them or the subject of the letter they might write. One example of this occurred between Twain and the Virginia City journalist William H. Wright. The Nevada silver boom was in the news, and Twain's publishers felt that it was a good time for a book on the subject. Twain thought of Wright as the man to write the book, and on March 2nd, drafted a letter to him, urging him to write the book and making several suggestions for an outline. Twain finished the letter and sealed it into an envelope and then had second thoughts. If Wright penned the book and then couldn't find a publisher for it, Twain would be in an uncomfortable position with his friend. He decided not to send the letter and stuck it away inside of his desk. One week later, on March 9th, several letters arrived in the mail for Twain, and one of them was from William Wright. Twain told a visiting relative that he could tell them the date, signature, and the subject and all without ever breaking the seal. He explained that it would be from a Mr. Wright of Virginia City and it is dated the 2nd of March, seven days ago. Mr. Wright proposes to make a book about these silver mines and asks what I as a friend think of the idea. Twain then opened the letter. He had stated the date and the contents correctly and found that it reflected the contents of his own letter written on March 2nd, which had been in his desk since it had been written. Not long after that, Twain joined the Society for Psychical Research of London in 1885. Soon, his interest in the occult deepened even further with the death of his daughter Susie at age 24. She had spent the last two weeks of her life in pain and delirium and eventually went blind and fell into a coma. After her death, Twain relived each terrible memory and constantly blamed himself for her suffering. His biographer, Justin Kaplan, wrote that he searched for some sign that before she died she had him and her thoughts, spoke of him in pride or love. I wonder if she left any little messages for me, he wrote his wife, Olivia, imploringly. I was not deserving of it. He wanted everything of her last days kept, even the agonizing pages she wrote in her delirium and with the light fading. After Susie's death, Twain's wife retreated into full invalidism staying in her room and avoiding her husband's own black despair. She lost interest in her friends and began to immerse herself in spiritualism, a faith that believed in communication with the dead. Twain began to share her interests, and while he attended a number of seances, never became convinced that he personally contacted the dead. His bleakness deepened as the years went by until his family and friends all avoided his ranting and gloomy moods. Living in mourning and seclusion, he treated his surviving daughters like royalty, and each holiday that they came around, 
was celebrated as a remembrance of Susie. He often dreamed that she was still alive and in his declining years questioned the difference between dreams and reality, wondering if perhaps she was returning to him in his dreams. The author's dark days of brooding did not last. His life had always run in cycles of success and despair. He began lecturing again and wrote his book on Joan of Arc. Then, in 1904, Olivia passed away from heart trouble. He once again sank into grief and despair, only to revive again and begin writing and lecturing once more. He wrote a paper on a hypothetical experiment with mental telegraphy in which a man was to invent a scheme that would synchronize two minds thousands of miles apart, enabling them to talk to one another. He was unhappy with the article and burned it, along with many other writings on the occult. He would not write such a book on the subject, he said, unless it would write itself. He stated that he would ignore such writings, but that when he was asleep, new ideas would come to him. However, most of these works were never completed. In 1907, Twain received a cable from England, informing him that he was to receive an honorary degree from Oxford, which would join his other degrees from Yale and the University of Missouri. He traveled to Europe, but by 1909 his health was beginning to fail. He returned to Stormfield, his house in Reading, Connecticut, where he was staying with his youngest daughter, Jean, and then traveled to rest in the warm climate of Bermuda. There, many of his friends and acquaintances, including Woodrow Wilson, came to visit him. He returned to America strengthened and with a new interest in astronomy. He remarked to his friend Albert Bigelow Payne that, I came in with Halley's Comet in 1835. It will be coming again next year, and I expect to go out with it. In 1909, Twain suffered the last of his great losses when his daughter Jean died from heart failure caused by an epileptic seizure. In her biography, My Father, Mark Twain, his daughter Clara noted a strange incident that followed Jean's death. Her father wrote her that, for one who does not believe in spirits, I have had a most peculiar experience. He explained that as he entered the room where Jean had died, something very odd happened. You know how warm it always is in there, and there are no drafts. All at once I felt a cold current of air about me. I thought the door must be open, but it was closed. I said, Jean, is this you trying to let me know that you have found the others? Then the cold air was gone. A short time later, Twain's health collapsed and he became gravely ill. He never lost his sense of humor, though, despite trouble breathing and the fact that he was in constant pain. Four months after Jean's death, on April 1, 1910, he died at the age of 74. His last words to Clara were, Goodbye, dear, if we meet. In his final prediction, he had been correct. He came in with Haley's Comet and he did go out with it, just as he said he would. IRS Those three letters create more fear in some people than any episode of Weird Darkness ever could. The IRS does not give up until you pay. Trust me, I know. A few years ago, Robin and I were having some major financial difficulties and we found ourselves owing over $10,000 to the IRS. 
we almost lost our house. But back then, they didn't have something that exists today. If you owe back taxes, you can call Tax Solutions now and get some help. For a limited time, the IRS is offering a tax forgiveness program called Fresh Start, and it can help you pay back taxes, avoid tax liens, and get a fresh start. Tax Solutions Now is accredited with the Better Business Bureau and members of the National Association of Tax Professionals. So if you need a fresh start when it comes to your tax burden, call Tax Solutions Now at 800-417-9743. That's 800-417-9743. 800-417-9743. Here at Weird Darkness, scares are a daily thing. But what I'm about to tell you might horrify you. Someone in your family could, right now, be playing a dangerous game of Russian roulette. Over 43,000 people die each year from drug overdose. That's 120 people per day, five people per hour. That's a death by overdose every 12 minutes. And alcohol abuse is even worse. 88,000 people die every year from alcohol abuse. That's 240 people per day, 10 per hour, one person dying from alcohol abuse every six minutes. Somebody close to you might be next. Before that happens, take a proactive step and learn how to get those you love away from the drugs, alcohol, and other bad influences. Learn more by calling 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. With the FMLA, that person can even take a leave of absence from their job to get the help they need and keep their job so they can return to it. 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. I've always been fascinated with the unknown particularly creatures of the unknown. I don't know when this obsession of mine started. It probably started when I was a young kid and would watch documentary series on aliens, Bigfoot, Yeti, unknown sea monsters, and the like. My obsession earned me my share of names and bullying in school. Like a good nerd, I pushed up my glasses and shook it off and moved on to college, where I earned a degree in zoology and eventually my master's and Ph.D., Along the way, I had discovered the gym, alcohol, women, contact lenses, and other things life had to offer. However, my main love was cryptozoology. I spent two years of my late 20s running around the world with well-known and respected biologists, zoologists, marine biologists, looking for a new species and studying others that we knew little about. My colleagues and myself found new insects, fish, reptiles, but never anything that would fall under the strange or mythical. I made a name for myself in the science community. People like to say I could find anything but Bigfoot. I enjoyed my small notoriety. After those exciting two years, I decided I wanted to work somewhere more traditional. While creating footprints around the world was fun, I was tired of never being in one place for more than a few weeks at a time. I also wanted to spend more time trying to research and find these storied monsters than work on someone else's expedition. 
I landed a job at a big state university in Ohio teaching in the biology department. I also started a cryptozoology club which attracted a large following of students. With permission from the university, I would take students to so-called haunted places, hot spots for unknown creatures, and the like. We would always come up with some crazy disembodied EVP, blurry video, or grainy photo. We never had anything conclusive, but it was fun for the students and myself, and it got them to think outside of the box and question what we really know about our world. The passion for trying to discover the unknown that I saw in the group's members is what kept my interest in it strong. Like I said before, my main love was cryptozoology until one faculty Christmas party. There I met Diane. She was this beautiful brown-haired woman about my age who worked in the English department teaching creative writing. I knew I needed to meet this woman. I wasn't a scrawny nerd from high school anymore. I was in shape, successful in my field, and not too bad-looking, at least I told myself that. I used a corny pickup line to introduce myself. She had a cornier comeback. We laughed, talked the entire party, exchanged numbers, and the rest is history. A few months after we started dating, we moved in together. I had never fallen so hard for someone. We shared a lot of common interests but had a lot of differences. I liked the outdoors and she preferred to stay in. I was a busybody and she was more relaxed. We both liked wine and a good book. She was a published writer who wrote these amazing stories about make-believe creatures. I read several of her short stories and one of her books, which all seemed to be centered on forest fairies and children. Diane. I said, closing her latest published book as I was sprawled out on the couch one evening. Have I told you that you are an excellent writer? Diane was in the kitchen making her famous chicken Alfredo. Yes, but you can tell me again if you'd like, she playfully responded. Can I ask you a question? Where do you get your inspiration for these stories? She walked out of the kitchen, wiping her hands on a dishcloth. I get them from the stories my grandmother told me when I visited her in Canada when I was young. I sat up on the couch and she gracefully took a seat next to me. Tell me more, please, I asked inquisitively. When I was young, Diane began with a look of remembrance on her face, we would visit my grandmother every summer in Alberta. She lived in a town called New Village. There weren't many people there. It was a beautiful town shadowed by snow-capped peaks. There was a great big pine forest that lay between the town and the closest mountain. It was probably a few hundred acres or so. At the base of the mountain was this crystal clear lake that was full of fish and that emptied into a small river. All the kids in town would play in the forest, lake, and river but were strictly forbidden from staying out past sundown. This was enforced harshly by the townspeople, including my grandmother. Diane paused for a moment go on, I urged her with a smile. So my grandmother would tell me about the fairies in the forest and how they liked to play tricks on people. If I disobeyed my elders, they would take me away forever. Those stories always freaked me out. My parents didn't like her telling me those stories, but they agreed that I should listen to my grandmother and be inside before dark. The stories didn't bother me too much until one of the young boys I played with each summer 
went missing in the woods. He ran away one night into the forest after a fight with his father. They never found him, and the townspeople didn't bother looking for him until after sunrise. I just can't believe the people wouldn't go looking for a boy in the forest until it was sun up, unless they all truly believed in the fairies. The fairies in my books are mischievous but much nicer than the ones in my grandmother's stories. They never take people away. Diane's face was now a half-smile. Kind of your thing, isn't it? What do you mean? I looked at her, slightly confused. You know, imaginary creatures that live in the woods. She looked at me with a smart-ass grin. Well, I've heard and read up on fairy folklore, but it's not something that many cryptozoologists spend a vast amount of time on. However, I've never heard of a town afraid of fairies, especially from a first-hand account. It would be interesting to investigate something like that. Diane smiled a mischievous smile that stretched from ear to ear. Good. My parents want to meet you, and I want you to meet them. My grandmother passed away when I was young, and my parents inherited the house. They retired there a few years ago. You can come with me this summer when I visit them and solve the town's fairy problem. By this point, she was standing over me, giving me the puppy eyes to agree. Just like that, our summer plans were made, and in early June I found myself on a plane from Ohio to Alberta with Diane and a bag full of some of my recording equipment I took on my excursions with my student group. Once there, we picked up a rental car and drove what felt like hours into the forest-covered mountains. At one point, we left the winding highway to exit onto an even more treacherous two-lane mountain road. Fifteen minutes from the highway, we arrived at what looked like a ghost town. There were several small shops that were closed and what looked like an unfinished hotel from the 60s. This place has become a ghost town since I was a girl, Diane said as we drove past the abandoned buildings. A few short minutes later, we pulled into her parents' driveway. Her parents' house sat on a short, dead-end road of a few dozen houses. Behind her house lay the thick pine forest she had mentioned to me. In the distant background loomed a majestic, snow-capped mountaintop. Her parents greeted us with smiles at the door. Diane excitedly hugged her mother and father. I, trying to hide my nerves meeting my girlfriend's parents for the first time, quickly shook their hands and introduced myself as John the guy that was here to fix their fairy problem. They both smiled and paused before saying through their teeth, the fairy problem is under control. Come in, dinner is about ready. My nervous attempt to be funny appeared to have become a strikeout. Dinner went well, and we talked about our trip up and what I did at the university. With our bellies full, Diane's father invited me out on the back porch for a beer. So, you teach cryptozoology at the university? Diane's father asked before taking a big swig of beer from his bottle. No, I teach animal behavior and social interaction. I'd like to teach cryptozoology at some point, but I need to have the class curriculum written and approved before I can. I slouched in my porch chair and began to enjoy my beer. I suppose Diane has told you a bunch of crazy stories about fairies in our woods. I looked at him and gave a small nod as I took another sip from my bottle. They're all true. Sounds stupid crazy, but they're all true. My wife told me those stories too, and I wouldn't have believed them 
If I hadn't seen some crazy stuff or experienced our neighbor's niece disappear one night two summers ago in that pine forest. He pointed towards the wood line just off his backyard while taking another swig from his bottle. We've had a drought the last few years and the pines are all dried up and getting brown. The forest used to be dark and green, now it's just a sad brownish color. Diane's father finished his beer and looked up at the sky. The pines were brown and looked all dried out even in the setting sun. The air wasn't filled with that typical pine wood smell, in fact the air was cool and stale. You want to see a magic trick? He asked me excitedly. Um, sure, I said, half expecting him to pull a coin from behind my ear. Watch the back gate. The sun sets at about 9 p.m. today. About that time, the latch will pop up and it'll swing open. No hands, he said, waving his in the air. Diane's parents' yard was fenced in with a single back gate, which led directly into the forest. Some of the forest pine's branches hung just over the gate. I wasn't quite sure how to take Diane's father's statement, so I waited. The sun slowly crept behind the mountains and the clock reached 9 p.m. I finished my beer as we quietly sat on the back porch. As I was about to get up and tell Diane's father that this was the longest trick I'd ever waited for, the sound of scraping against the opposite side of the fence caught my ear. It started at the back corner of the fence. It sounded like a child was dragging a stick across its pickets as they walked by. The sound accelerated towards the gate. I was laser-focused on the gate, paying no attention to Diane and her mother who had walked out onto the deck with us. Ching! went the gate latch, and the gate swung open slowly, as if pushed softly by an invisible force. No way! I muttered to myself as I slowly began to walk off the deck towards the back gate. A strong, forceful grip pulled me back up onto the deck. My head snapped around to see Diane's father gripping my arm with force. Don't go over there, he said with a stern voice and look. Robert, let him go, Diane's mother chimed in. John, stay here. Do not go anywhere near the woods or the wood line after the sun is set. Mom, Dad, stop. Diane strongly pulled me away from her parents. You're embarrassing me. She turned to me and said, I'll take you into the woods tomorrow. It's fine. You'll see. Come inside. She turned and graciously stormed back into the house. Feeling awkward, I pretended to take one last drink of my beer and began to follow Diane. You can go into the woods all you want during the day, but as soon as the sun sets, you must be out, Robert said, cutting me off before I could walk inside. I stopped and looked at him. His face showed genuine concern. I glanced back at Diane's mother. Her face had the same expression. Diane really likes you, John, her mother started. We would prefer you left with her when your visit here is done. Explore all you want, but please listen to us about the woods. Yes, please listen to Mary and me, Robert said, almost pleading. I looked down. I understand. I'll make sure to heed your warning. I brought some research equipment with me. Is it okay if I place a camera on the fence to capture this tomorrow? That'd be fine, Robert said. Just do it early when it's still light. I agreed, and with that, I went inside feeling a bit confused at Diane's parents' insistence on staying away from the woods after dark. 
Diane and I got ready for bed that night, and as I laid in bed with her on my chest, I tried to piece together if her family really believed in fairies and if their facial concern earlier was genuine. Your family really believes in the fairies, don't they? I asked Diane. She rolled over and picked up her head to face me. It's embarrassing. Not the fact that they believe in that stuff, but that they're so adamant that the woods are a bad place. If I'd been rebellious as a kid, I would have run off into the woods many times. They're beginning to act like my grandmother when I was a child. I don't know how my dad does that gate trick, but it's getting old. He pulled it on me two years ago and insists it's not him. Diane was getting more annoyed the more she talked. I'll take you into the woods tomorrow, you'll see. I used to play there as a child, there's nothing wrong with it. I pulled her in tight to my body and kissed her goodnight softly. Okay, we'll go have an adventure tomorrow, I said, before dozing off. The next morning, Diane took me into the pine forest after breakfast. She showed me all the things she could remember from her childhood. She showed me her favorite trails, which had become slightly overgrown. She showed me her favorite spot on the river and her favorite shore of the lake. The lake shore was littered with dead fish here and there, but strangely no rotting fish smell. It's a shame they've died. I remember the lake being healthy when I was young. We used to fish here as kids, she explained to me as we navigated the shores. On the lake shore was an old foundation to a building that never started. Diane said that it was supposed to be a lodge for visitors to the lake in the 60s, but it was never finished. The crumbling foundation was covered in moss and looked more like a pathetic version of Stonehenge more than anything else. It was about noon, and we agreed to head back through the woods to get some lunch at her parents' house. As we walked hand-in-hand through the woods on trails that I was surprised she could still navigate from her childhood memories, I noticed that almost all of the pines were brown or brownish-green. Their trunks were rather large, and most of the underbrush was dead or looked like it was dying. Diane mentioned that there'd been little rain during the summer and spring of the last few years. I thought it strange that the forest would be dried out, but the river and lake didn't seem to be at low levels. At lunch, Robert brought the topic of cryptozoology and my interests in what they felt were fairies in the forest. You should talk to Daniel Whitefeather. He's a detective with the county and lives a few houses down. He's also the last of the tribe that once lived here. He's sort of an amateur historian for the area and has plenty of stories to tell about the fairies in the woods. I'll give him a call and tell him you're coming over. Robert gave me his address and, at the encouragement of Diane, I ventured to his house that afternoon, as Diane and her mother had planned to do some shopping in the next town over. I knocked on Daniel's door, unsure if he would be home or not. The lock unlatched and the door slowly opened to an older man with a weather-beaten face. "'Are you Daniel?' I asked, reaching out my hand for a handshake. "'My name is John, and you want to know about the woods, correct?' he said, cutting me off. "'Robert called and told me about you. Come in, please.' I got a few hours before I need to head to work to cover a night shift. I entered his house. It was large and filled with mounted animals, fish, and a variety of what happened to be Native American memorabilia. He led me to his living room and motioned for me to sit. His living room walled on all sides by filing cabinets and bookshelves. There was no TV, 
and a thick layer of dust caked most flat surfaces. So, what can I tell you? Daniel stated slowly, taking a seat in the chair across from me. Well, whatever you know about the forest or the supposed creatures in the forest, I started. I study unknown creatures, mythological creatures or whatever you want to call them, and I'm familiar with fairies in folklore, but I've never encountered an entire town that seemed to fear these creatures like they supposedly do here. Daniel sat back for a moment and looked up at the ceiling as if to pull his thoughts down through the tile. My tribe, or rather my ancestors, was the first to settle this area. As the oral tradition goes, we were once a large and proud tribe that numbered greatly in Alberta long before the white settlers came. A harsh run of winters and warring with other tribes cut our numbers down, and our enemies pushed us out of our original land. We wandered until we found this place. Cold, starved, and desperate for shelter, we felt blessed to have come across a place with good hunting, the mountains to shelter us, and a river and lake to supply us with fresh water. I looked at him eagerly as he took a small break to remember his words. He sat up and leaned forward in his chair. The story goes that when we found this land, we were forbidden to enter the forest by some strange creatures that lived there. My people would call them the Forest Walkers. They said they were guardians of the pine forest here. The chief, seeing his people starving and without a place to live, struck a deal with the Forest Walkers. We could hunt, fish, live here, and they would protect us as long as once, every moon cycle, we agreed to give them one of our own. Wait, I interrupted, so like a sacrifice? Yes, Daniel continued. Each full moon, we would send one chosen person by lot into the forest. Their screams would fill the night sky. It was a horrible thing, but for us to survive, the chief made the deal and we kept to it. Many years would pass as we sacrificed one after another of our town. Our numbers would slowly decrease over time, but those who remained were always safe, had food to hunt and fresh water to drink. Daniel got up from his seat and walked over to his bookshelf and pulled out a leather-bound book whose page edges were yellowed from age. He plopped the book down in front of me on the coffee table between us. The book landed with a thud and a dust cloud filled the air. Sorry, I've been busy and haven't had much time to clean, Daniel stated, fighting back a cough and swatting the air to clean it. It's no problem, I calmly replied as I sat back trying to avoid the allergen-heavy mushroom cloud. But how does what happens to be an Indian legend turn into a town of people fearing the woods? That book, he stated, pointing at it, contains all the stories about the forest walkers that have been passed down from generation to generation in my tribe. I started writing them down when I was young. I got them from the elders, my relatives, and many others before they all passed. I'm the last one, and I figure someone should document this so others can know what we witnessed." Daniel sat back in his chair again now that the dust had settled. Everything changed when the white man came into our land. First, he was one man. He was an explorer. We did not see him as a threat, so we let him pass. However, he found gold in the river. He told others. Soon many others showed up looking for gold in the river. They brought furs, 
meats, beads, and guns. They were willing to trade for small pieces of land so that they could live here while they prospected. We agreed. The prospectors were supplying us with new things and we were trading small parcels of land for them. The white people cut down trees to make the clearing in which our town sits now. They built houses, they hunted and fished. We no longer sent one of our own into the forest every full moon. So the sacrifices stopped because you were getting what you needed from the settlers? I questioned. What about your deal with the creatures? We lived peacefully alongside the white man, Daniel started again. The forest walkers were angry that we had broken our deal. They would watch us from the tree line in the shadows. Their anger could be felt. One night several prospectors who were fishing the lake came home through the forest late. The walkers took one of them violently in front of the others. Their screams filled the night air. The survivors fled and never returned. They left their belongings and even their gold because they were so scared. Soon people who were in the woods past dark began to disappear. No trace could be found. Daniel sat up and took a deep breath. When people started to avoid the woods after dark, they started to trick people into coming into the woods. They would mimic the cries of children or loved ones during the night. Anyone who ran into the woods to save them would be taken. They took three mothers of our tribe once because the walkers cried like babies on the forest line. The women ran to save the babies only to be taken away. They only took one person at a time, but they started taking them more often as revenge. So they can mimic sounds or voices? I questioned, a bit confused. Yes, he began while rubbing the side of his head. They can take anyone's voice or sound like anything that would entice you to enter the woods. The greed of gold was greater than the danger of being taken, and more and more white people showed up until so many had disappeared that the word had gotten out that this land was cursed. Many people left, but those who were widows with small children stayed. Everyone who lives here now is a relative of someone who's been taken. My tribe helped them and welcomed them to stay here. It became forbidden to enter the forest at night. So why are there people still living here? I questioned. Why not pack up and leave this place if it's cursed? My people made a pact with those who were left from the prospecting rush. We agreed to guard this place and keep people from the evil here. We would tell no one about this place. We had made a deal and broken it. We had put others in danger. However, no matter what we did or said, the word always made it out about the fishing and hunting or the gold in the river. People would come and disappear. Together we would warn them, but they would disappear in the woods after dark. Once in the 60s, a group found out about the fishing and tried to build a lodge on the lakeshore. They are all gone. We tried to warn them, but they called us insane. It is only recently that this town and forest have gone unnoticed by the outside. There have only been a few disappearances in the last 10 years. I've seen the foundation. I sat up at the chair as I was drawn into his stories more and more. Daniel got up and walked over to one of his filing cabinets. He pulled open the top drawer, creating another small dust cloud. He reached inside and pulled out a black binder that was stuffed full of paperwork. Here, he said, motioning for me to take the binder. What's this? 
I questioned, taking the heavy binder from him. It is all the open missing persons cases that I am in charge of. They are all from here. That's crazy, I said as I opened the binder. There must be hundreds of cases in here. Some people say I am a shit detective. I know what happened to those people, but it's not something you could put on an official report and still keep your job. If you look at the reports, they all have the same pattern. These people were all last seen before dark in the forest. I ended my conversation with Daniel as he was about to get ready for work. He was working a missing persons case from two towns over. He let me borrow the case binder and the book of his tribe's stories. That evening, I set up a small camera and microphone on the opposite side of the fence in Diane's parents' backyard. If I could get something on tape, I might understand better what I was dealing with. I paired it with my laptop, set it to record, and left the laptop in the bedroom while I got ready for dinner. While sitting on the back deck after dinner, I eagerly read through the stories of his ancestors. The only interruption was the sound of a stick being drug across the fence and the pop of the fence latch coupled with Robert's voice repeating, right on time, as the sun set behind the mountain. I had forgotten about my camera at this point. That night, I excitedly discussed with Diane what I had discovered during the afternoon. You should interview the neighbors. Most of them are older and are retired, so they'll be home. I think I'll do that tomorrow, I said excitedly. The idea of having discovered a legitimate cryptozoology find that I could present to the community raced through my mind like a blazing wildfire. Only if you could take me to a fancy breakfast in the morning, Diane said with a devilish smile. Mother and I are going to pick blueberries tomorrow evening to make pie. It's your specialty and I think you'll like it. Deal. I went to shut off the lights and realized my camera was still recording through the laptop. Diane, let's see if my camera caught what popped open your back gate. Diane slid across the bed as I swiped my finger across the trackpad to remove the screensaver. The camera screen popped up and the camera looked like it was facing up at a window on a house rather than down to the fence row. That's our bedroom window, Diane said quietly. I stood up and walked over to the window. I could see the power light on my camera looking back at me. Something had moved it. No one had touched it since I set it up that I could recall. I hopped back onto my laptop and rewound the captured footage. At 8.57 p.m., the camera started to wiggle, and then it violently dropped at an awkward angle to the ground just as the fence was starting to be scraped. We watched and listened as the gate latch unlocked and the gate swung open. Whatever did it was just off camera. Did you hear that? I asked intensely. What? Diane replied. I bumped the audio level up and skipped back on the video. In a hissing tone, the words, no, see, yet, sounded. It was quiet, but clear. What was that? Diane asked with a quite shocked tone. I fast-forwarded through the footage until I saw the camera start to move. From there, an unseen figure picked up the camera and put it on the post where it was now facing our bedroom window. Our bedroom light came on, and in the background of the footage you could hear a faint giggle like a small child would make. John, that's creeping me out. Diane reached across my laptop and shut my laptop. Turn out the light, we're going to bed. She rolled over into bed and pulled the covers over her body. I shut the light off and followed. 
The next day, after taking Diane to breakfast in the next town over, I went door to door asking people what they knew about the forest. Many were hesitant to talk to me until I explained who I was, what I believed, and that I intended to study what was going on. Once that was out of the way, I was warmly welcomed into many of their homes. The townspeople had a wide array of stories. I wrote down as much as I could in a notebook. Their stories ranged from relatives disappearing to hearing strange voices at night to seeing groups of travelers go missing in one night without a trace. Many were older stories of loved ones who wandered into the forest late or failed to make it out before sundown. Everyone seemed to believe in the creatures that populated the pine forest, but no one had ever seen one. One older gentleman mentioned his sister had gone into the forest on an afternoon stroll and never returned. For months afterward, he swears he could hear her voice calling every evening to him from the woods, but he dare not enter. Eventually, the voice stopped. The rest of the afternoon I dedicated to taking notes on all of the missing persons cases. I only stopped to kiss Diane goodbye as she and her mother left to get blueberries from the forest. She had promised to be home in an hour or two. I was fine with her going since it would be several hours before the sun went down. You feel okay going into the woods after the video feed from last night? I questioned. Diane shuddered and then sighed. Nothing bad has ever happened during the day. My mother will be with me. I'm sure it was probably my dad playing a trick on us. Just come home safe to me. She smiled and closed the door. I returned to my reading. Each case had the same set of circumstances. The person was last seen going into the woods before dark or just after dark and not returning once the sun set. Several of the cases mentioned witnesses hearing strange sounds from the woods. One case in particular mentioned that a county police search group went into the woods after dark. None returned. There was no good explanation of why the people went missing. News clippings placed the blame on people getting lost in the Canadian outback or the possibility of these people running into bears or wolves. Exhausted after all my note-taking, I closed the binder full of cases and sat back in my seat in the living room. I breathed deeply and stood up, collecting the binder and book that Daniel had let me borrow. The front door swung open slowly. I looked up, hoping to see Diane and her mother, but to my surprise, Robert walked in. "'Hey, I didn't even know you were gone,' I said in a tired tone. "'Yeah,' Robert started as he took his shoes off at the door. You were buried so deep in your reading that you didn't notice I left for town. Just went out to get some gas for the mower. Yard is getting kind of long and needs to be trimmed. Keep an eye out for Diane and Mary. They went to pick blueberries in the woods and haven't returned yet. Okay. Yeah, the girls still have time. Sun won't set for another three and a half hours. I could hear a slight worry in his voice. I finished gathering my things and walked to Daniel's house to return his items. When I arrived, he was sitting on his front porch, still in his police uniform with a beer. John, he said with a smile, holding the beer up in salutation, I see you've come to return my binder and book. Did you find what you needed? I handed him the book and binder and took a seat beside him. I find a lot of interesting stuff. I interviewed many of the neighbors, and I believe everyone feels like there is something in the woods. All the missing cases are similar. All the Indian stories are intriguing, but... Tell me something, why are there people still living here? 
I understand your ancestors made a pact, but why not just up and leave? Daniel put his beer down on the porch and sighed deeply. He raised his hands up and placed them behind his head before sinking back into his chair. This will sound stupid, but it has been an oral tradition and agreement of all those raised here that we would stay and make sure nothing would be built on this land beyond what has already existed. We didn't want other folks to suffer what our ancestors have gone through. Everyone here is a relative of a prospector or settler that came here many years ago. Everyone has lost someone to those woods. All those boarded buildings in town belong to someone here. They've just agreed to never sell them and let them fall into dust. Most people couldn't afford to move away anyway. Some of the houses up the street are the same way. Why give something to someone in this horrid place? We grew up here. We know what it's like to hear the noises in the night and fear for visiting relatives. If the townspeople all die off and this place falls off the map, it would be best for everyone. He took another deep breath. We are the last of the people who will live here. Diane's parents were raised here. She wasn't. When they're gone, the house will sit abandoned, just like the rest. I sat in silence, trying to wrap my head around what Daniel was telling me. Sure, none of the houses in the town were extravagant and no particular person seemed to be wealthy, but how could they live in a place that they all seemed to fear? What do they look like? I asked. Who? Daniel replied, sitting up a little straighter as if surprised by my question. The forest walkers, or the fairies, or whatever you want to call them. What do they look like? I have no descriptions in any of the text you gave me. The only indication of someone talking to them was your ancestors. I sat up and looked at Daniel with a stern look. Tonight is a full moon. Only a few people have been lost in the woods during the dark in the last ten years. They are angry. You can feel it in the air. I'm going to retire in two years. I spent my life trying to find those missing people. I've been in the woods during the day. They are hard to see. They are tall and very skinny. If you look hard, you can see their outline among the trees. It's very hard to make out, but there are hundreds of them. They're in the woods now. They won't move until dark, but even now you can look among the tree line and see them standing still. Daniel pointed toward the woods that were across the road from his house. I looked hard, but could see nothing but pines in the fading light. I thanked him for his time and resources and made my way back to Diane's parents' house in the waning light. The sun had set, and a cool breeze blew over the road and into the woods as if the forest itself was inhaling. I walked along the broken sidewalk, looking into the dark pines to see if I could catch a glimpse of what Daniel was talking about. The moon was full and extra bright. It almost looked like day out with a slight bluish tint. There was no noise, no bugs, no birds. Only the breeze and my footsteps filled the night air. I would be home in just another 100 yards or so. John! A blood-curdling cry sounded from just inside the forest line. That voice, I knew that voice. It was Diane. The hair on my neck stood straight up. My heart began to pound with a violent fervor. Diane hadn't come back with her mother when I left. What if she hadn't made it out of the woods? What if she was hurt? What if she was being taken? John! The scream sounded again. This time it sounded like she was in agonizing pain. I was in the woods 20 yards deep before I realized what I was doing. 
My eyes scanned everywhere frantically. Diane! I called out. There was no answer, only dead silence. The moon was so bright I could make out almost everything from the light that shone through the pine branches. Diane! I was breathing through my mouth now. My breaths matched the frantic pace of my heart. I stood there in silence. I looked hard at the dense pine forest in front of me. Movement caught my eye. I wasn't alone. There was movement everywhere, but I couldn't see exactly what it was. Whatever it was made no noise, and it appeared opaque, almost invisible, as if out of nowhere the opaque shapes melded into reality. They were human height. Their skin was white. They had thin legs, arms, and body structures. Their skin looked dry but rigid like a worm's. Their head was large, white, sideways cone-shaped with no features, only a small black hole in the front. My muscles tensed as pure fear flowed through me. I couldn't move. I was awestruck and fear-consumed at the same time. Dozens of these things were in front of me. They all looked horribly the same. I wanted to run. I couldn't. One of them moved slowly towards me. Twenty feet from me, it stopped. It was dead quiet. My heart was pounding so hard I could hear it. The hole at the front of its head grew larger as if something was pushing out of it. Like the peeling of a sausage casing, the skin of this thing pulled back, and out of the black appeared to be a young woman's head. My jaws dropped. I could feel my heart beat in my ears. Her hair was black and greasy-looking. Her eyes were black ovals. Her skin was pale. She looked up at me. It felt like an eternity as I looked at this human head upon this monstrosity. Her mouth opened. John! Her voice echoed. But I knew that voice. It was Diane's. Confusion took over. The woman's head on this monster twisted sideways in a horrible manner while looking at me with a blank facial expression. John! 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 Diane's voice repeated faster and faster. Then an ear-shattering, maniacal laugh echoed from its mouth. Tears streaked down my face as my lips began to tremble. It stopped. From jaw to forehead, the woman's face split in half, opening from side to side as if it had been sliced through, revealing a mass of razor-sharp teeth and flailing tentacle-like tongues. The creature shrieked. It was so high-pitched and growling that it made the forest shake and my ears ring. I fell backwards onto my back with a hard thud, and for the first moment since I saw the thing, I could move. I began to shuffle frantically backwards, kicking my legs to propel me away from this monstrosity. The creature dropped to all fours and began to rush me in the most inhuman way possible. I knew there was no way to get up and outrun it. It was about to be upon me. I raised my arm to cover my face. No! I shouted as I looked away. Nothing. I felt no pain. No creature landed on me. John! Mom! Dad! No! A cry rang out in Diane's voice, but only this time it sounded as if it came from the direction of her home. I immediately stood up, trying to comprehend what was happening. The creatures were gone but something in the underbrush moved violently away from me, tearing up ground and shaking branches as it went. Mary, no! Another voice rang out. It was Robert's. I was still confused and scared, but I wasn't going to stay in those woods any longer. 
I ran as fast as my legs could carry me to Diane's parents' house. Robert was in the backyard restraining Mary, who was sobbing. Let me go! Let me go! She's gone! They might take you, too, Robert replied, hugging his wife with all his force. What happened? I demanded. Oh my God, John, Robert said as he turned to me in shock. Diane swore she heard you screaming in the woods and ran in after you. We tried to stop her. A scream of pain from Diane rang out in the distance. My fear and adrenaline rush turned to anger. They took the woman I loved. These hideous things took Diane. Without thinking, I ran to the garage and scooped up the gas can Robert had filled earlier in the day. I scanned the garage frantically and found a propane torch on a shelf. I quickly made my way to the tree line in their backyard. Robert, hold this, I commanded as I shoved the propane lighter into his arms. I began pouring the gas carelessly onto the trees and the brush along the forest line. What are you doing? He asked with a puzzled look on his face, still trying to comfort his wife. I looked him dead in the eye and cold stated, Give me the torch. If they want to take her, I'm taking the forest from them. He reluctantly handed over the torch I had just forced him to hold. The forest was dry. The breeze was blowing into the forest. I opened the propane valve, lit the torch, and tossed it into the brush. In seconds, there was a towering inferno before me. I grabbed Robert and Mary, who were in shock at what I had just done, and drugged them to the front yard. The fire raged quickly and moved faster than anything I've ever seen before. Soon the entire town was standing on the road watching the blaze consume the pine forest they had always known. I stood silent among them with rage in my eyes. Suddenly, inhuman screams of horror and pain filled the air. They were piercing like a knife, causing many people to hold their ears. The townsfolk held their ears tight to block out the sound. Many ran back to their homes in fear or gripped each other for comfort. The screams roared deafeningly on and on as the fire raged, until suddenly, as quickly as it started, the screams went silent and only the blaze could be heard. Someone called the fire department, which alerted the forest rangers. There was nothing they could do. The flames spread so fast that the entire forest was burnt to the ground before they could enact a plan. I admitted to starting the fire and was arrested that night by county police. I spent three days in jail with little or no human contact. The cops moved about the office in a frantic manner as if they were swamped with more work than they could handle. They ignored me for the better part of my stay, only feeding me and checking in on me before night. When I awoke in my jail cell the third morning, Daniel was there to greet me. Good morning, I said, groggily. He opened the cell. You're free to go, John. What? I was confused and a little shocked. Come with me. He motioned for me to follow him. I stood up and did as he asked. They found Diane. Is she okay? Is she hurt? How? My heart was overjoyed in my confused state. She had some burns, cuts, bruises, suffered from some smoke inhalation and seems to be in shock, but she's alive. Get in the car and I'll take you to the hospital. I would have told you sooner, but I've been busy with everything that's been going on. Thank God! I shouted, but, but wait, I'm confused. Why am I going free? Get in the car. I'll tell you about it on the ride over. The car ride to the hospital was about an hour. 
On our way over, Daniel explained that I was the least of the problems the county had to deal with now. None of the houses in the town were damaged. The wind blew the fire in the opposite direction. Search and rescue teams combing the forest at night and early morning found Diane on the lakeshore. She was nude and in shock, but alive. The biggest issue the county had to deal with was the hundreds of skeletons found in the forest. They weren't scattered about like victims of a forest fire would be, though. The burnt-out pine tree trunks contained dozens of skeletons, as if they had been stuffed into the trees. Daniel showed me a picture on his phone that he had taken at one of the scenes. The photo contained a swollen-looking tree trunk that was burnt out. Inside the trunk, you could clearly see a human skeleton contorted in a horrible fashion, with the tree growing around it. What looked like wooden veins of bark fused to the skeleton, as if they were growing together. Some of the skeletons had been identified by dental record as people who had gone missing in the woods from the 60s. Others were determined to be hundreds of years old. The coroner was now trying to figure out whom the skeletal remains belonged to and how they could have possibly been encased in trees. Most of my missing persons cases will probably be closed because of this, Daniel said, breathing a heavy sigh of relief. I've only slept a few hours the past few days because of all the paperwork I have to do on my missing persons cases. Daniel dropped me off at the hospital and I made my way to Diane's room. Her parents were there. She was bruised and cut up, but alive, sitting there in her bed, looking forward, jaw agape, not blinking at all. When I walked in, she turned to me slowly, not blinking. When our eyes met, she began to sob. I ran to her and embraced her warmly. They took me, she said through heavy sobbing. They ripped my clothes and tried to put me in there. Where? I asked, fighting off my own tears while continuing to hug her tightly. In the trees. In the trees, she said through sobs. They feed the forest with us. The forest was dying, and it hungered. Not another word was said. I just held her tight till her sobbing stopped. When Diane was released from the hospital, we left for home. Her parents boarded up the house and bought a condo close to where we work. It's been years since this happened. We don't talk about it. Her parents don't talk about it. Yet I'm still obsessed with whatever these things were. With the forest gone, a development company bought all the land that the town sat on cheap and turned it into a housing development. No one has since disappeared to my knowledge in that area. There are some reports that the place is haunted and that at night you can still hear strange voices and screams. My camera had been recording the night of the fire. I watched the video once before I deleted it. Right before Diane was taken, the latch on the gate was popped by something opaque that my camera couldn't make out. The camera is then suddenly turned to the forest. My voice, my voice can be heard calling Diane's name in a scared tone. Diane can be seen running into the forest calling for me. As she disappears beyond what the camera can see, there's a voice that giggles like a small child and then states, we take, in a raspy high voice. The brush all around moves violently towards where Diane was last seen before you can hear her screams. 
I still run my cryptozoology group at the university and have never come across another story of such creatures. As obsessed as I am at trying to figure out what they were, if I ever came across another place that talked about fairies in the woods whom take people, I would probably pass on investigating those stories. Thanks for joining me for this archive episode of Weird Darkness. Do you have a dark tale to tell? You can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you like the show, please share a link to this episode on all of your social media, tell your friends about the show, and please leave a rating and review – I might read your review here in the podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness and early access a month early to the Weird But True video series. Plus, patrons get exclusive content such as chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Learn more about becoming a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. Also on the site, you can get the free mobile app, follow me on social media, join the Weirdos online community, see where I'm going to be on location in the future, and on the page labeled Weird Web, you'll get stories I didn't use in the podcast, fan art, pictures that weirdos like you send in to me, a weekly zombie comic strip, that and a whole lot more at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Again, thanks for joining me in this archive episode of Weird Darkness. Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, as I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life. But if you can't seem to get out of it, if you're in a constant state of sadness, as I was, maybe you're even fighting thoughts of suicide, you will try just about anything to get away from that pain. You might be using drugs or alcohol to try and fight it. And if that's you, please stop and do me a favor. Make one phone call that can save your life. The Hope and Helpline is there for you right now, no matter where you are. You can speak to someone who not only wants to help you, but has likely gone through depression or addiction themselves and are in recovery. They can help you find a way off that dark path you're on, in a healthy way. Call 800-830-9804. That's 800-830-9804. Call for yourself, or call to help someone who can't or won't call on their own. Someone is there 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. 800-830-9804 800-830-9804